Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning, for the opportunity to be able to come here and to gather. Lord, we are here because we want to worship you. Lord, we worship you when we sing as we've just done. Lord, we worship you as we pray as we're doing now. Lord, we worship you in our study of your word as we are about to do. I pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds this morning as we prepare to hear from you. Lord, please direct us and guide us, Lord. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, last time I was here, we were um, looking at the arrest of Jesus in the garden. Oh, sorry. We are going to be in Matthew chapter 27. See, I'm anxious to get going here. So 27, Matthew 27. So turn there now. If you don't have a Bible, just let us know. Brady and Cesar have, Brady, uh, have Brady's and Bibles, and we'll give you one of each. <laughs> um, if you don't own a Bible, please just make this God's gift. And if... Um, you know someone who doesn't have one, just take this Bible home and give it to them this year and say, this is the greatest, second greatest gift that you can receive. Again, so we were looking at Jesus. He's in the garden. He's praying. He's preparing for what he knows is coming. 600 soldiers show up with clubs and swords. And Jesus says, have you come out against a robber? Have you come out against someone who you believe to be a violent offender? And they bind Jesus and they bring him back to the house of the high priest in the middle of the night. On more than one occasion, we have seen that the chief priests and the elders of the, of the uh, church are trying to take Jesus. But each and every time they stop because they're afraid of what the crowd's reaction will be. But now they're desperate to get rid of him and to see an opportunity under the cover of darkness when the crowds are gone. At this point, many of the crowds who are flooding into Jerusalem to celebrate this feast time are not actually staying in the city. They're camped in the countryside all around the city. And at this time, in the middle of the night, they're all out. They're all in their camps. They're very likely all asleep because this is the middle of the night. And so they come and they take him under the cover of darkness. They find him guilty and deserving of death. You understand, every bit of this trial, every bit of his arrest, his trial, there's, there's several actually, if you go into the detail, there's at least three, some people believe that they can identify six different trials of Jesus over the course of the night, times of being questioned. Every single aspect of everything they do is illegal according to their own law. They can't do anything at night. They can't pass a verdict of guilty and execute it in the same day. They can't go out and seek witnesses. All of these things that we read that they do, they're all illegal according to their own laws. And yet these are the things they're doing under the cover of darkness. They thought that they were getting away with this. If we do it at night, no one will know. By the time everybody gets up and gets in the city, we'll already have him on the cross, which is exactly what they hoped for, and it's exactly what they got. 
They thought they would get away with it. But the Bible says, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed nor hidden that will not be known. Nowhere is this more true than in this situation because not only did they keep it hidden, not only did they, uh, did they think, not only did they become revealed, but it has become the central plot of Christianity. The fact that they took him and crucified him. It's not just known, it's known by everyone. Despite the t- their attempts to find witnesses to Jesus' guilt. They fall completely short until the high priest finally asks Jesus the question, the only question that matters, are you the Christ, the Son of God? To this point, Jesus doesn't answer to their accusations. He doesn't even call his own witnesses. If you recall, we, I said last time that they had tried and tried to find a one witness after another to come and, and, and even have something false that they could get away with accusing him of. Yet Jesus could have called an endless number of, te- of, of witnesses to testify for who he was. And yet he didn't. Not a single one. Well, finally, the high priest says, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus essentially says to the high priest, yes. And you should know that your response to my answer will one day determine your eternal destiny. Friends, when Jesus reveals to you that he is the Christ, the Son of God, your response to that answer will determine your eternal destiny. Who do you say Jesus is? Well, in response to Jesus' answer of, yes, I am, the high priest tears his robes. That was a sign of his uh, disgust over Jesus' claim to be deity. He said, this is blasphemy. Ultimately, that's what they accuse him of, a, a a crime punishable by death. And in response to that, he tears his clothes, which we looked at the high priest was forbidden to do according to Leviticus 21. And yet here he is tearing his clothes, essentially ushering in the beginning of the end of the need for the priesthood. The high priest hears Jesus claim to be deity, claim to be the son of God, and he tears his robe and God says, you started it and now I'm going to finish it. And on the cross, when Jesus gives up his spirit, God reaches down and he tears the veil that separated God from mankind, eliminating the need for the priesthood at that point. And that priest didn't know what he was doing. Incidentally, in case you've always just thought of the veil as this thin curtain that separated them, this was a massive veil, about, about as thick as your hand. Took 30 or 40 guys to hoist that thing up, and God simply reaches down and rips it top to bottom. During all of this, we witness Peter's rapid decline as he not once but three times denies even knowing Jesus. With each declaration, he sinks a little deeper. He says, I don't know what you're talking about when they first come to him and say, hey, weren't you with Jesus? A second time, a girl comes to him and says, no, you're, you're one of him. 
You're a follower of his. And he says now, further declining, says, no, I swear I don't know this Jesus. Finally, a third person comes to Peter and says, no, no, you're him. I know you. Your accent betrays you. You have the same accent as Jesus. And he says, let me be eternally damned if what I'm saying is not true. I don't know him. At that moment, we looked at this last week, the, the announcement to worship in the temple goes forward. It was called the cock crow. And at that moment, Jesus, bloodied and beaten already, looks over at Peter, it says, and their eyes meet. And the realization of what he has just done hits Peter like a ton of bricks. And he runs out, weeping bitterly. That's where we left Peter. But that's not where Jesus left Peter. You see, after Jesus' resurrection and his appearance to his followers, Jesus ends up alone with Peter. And you can read about this in the 27th chapter of the Gospel of John. He says to Peter, Peter, do you love me more than all of these? Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And, and I've heard this taught, and I've taught this too, is that the Lord gives Peter, he asks him three times, do you love me? Giving Peter a chance three times to back up the denial. But there's so much more. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you agape, that's the word for love, me and it's a word that means do you love me unconditionally you know agape is what we call god love spiritual love it means loving unconditionally and peter answers with a different word for love he answers with phileo which means well brotherly love philadelphia is where we get that word but essentially what it means is um it means uh i'm fond of you I regard you with affection. Jesus says, Peter, do you agape love me? Do you love me unconditionally? And Peter says, Lord, you know I'm very fond of you. Whenever I say the word agape love is unconditional love, someone always says to me, we can't love unconditionally. As human beings, we can't love unconditionally. And that's probably true. Did you know that when agape is referred to, if it's God-loving people, it's unconditional love. But when it's people being asked to love God, it means to embrace God's will. Did you know that? Peter, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you embrace my will? And Peter says, you know I'm very fond of you. What's wrong with Peter? Doesn't he realize that Jesus is saying, Peter, do you love me like I love you? Maybe Peter's thinking, Lord, what I did was so bad. And I swore that I would never do it. And I did it anyway three times. I'm not worthy of your unconditional love. 
Jesus is unrelenting in his pursuit of restoration. And finally, Jesus, in this story in in the 27th chapter of John, he says, Peter, follow me. That's his response. Jesus says, do you love me unconditionally? Do you love me enough that you will embrace my will? And Peter says, well, Lord, I'm really fond of you. Peter, follow me. You know this is probably more significant than you probably realize. You see, Jesus goes all the way back to the beginning to when he first called Peter. It actually was a very similar situation. Peter and his brother and their partners were out fishing. And this is about three years from what's taking place right now. And they, um, hey, big surprise, have caught nothing. The great fishermen who don't catch fish. They're boaters. All night they toil and Jesus comes to them on the shore and he says, have you caught anything? And they're like, ah, no. And he says, throw your nets over onto the other side. And Peter's just like, oh, great. Another guy telling us how to do our job. Fine. And they throw their nets over onto the other side, the side that they shouldn't have caught any fish on based on where they were in the water. And all of a sudden their, their nets are overwhelmed with fish, not just a few so many that it fills the boat and causes it to begin to sink. On seeing this miracle on his behalf, Peter jumps out of the boat, he comes to shore, and he falls down on his knees before Jesus, and he says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And Jesus says, follow me. I get the sense that Peter is feeling kind of the same way again in this place. Depart from me, Lord, for I am still a sinful man. And Jesus gives him the same answer. Peter, follow me. Jesus didn't ask Peter to be perfect or flawless to begin following him, and he doesn't need him to be perfect or flawless to keep following him. He just needs Peter to embrace his will. Friends, I know that there have been times and there will be times when you have found yourself in the same place as Peter, reluctant to receive the Lord's forgiveness. Because like Peter, you feel ashamed of what you have allowed to happen and probably not for the first time. How can you love me, Lord? We say. And Jesus answers in the same way that he answers to Peter Follow me. Do you love me? We're going to pick up here in chapter 27. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. So this first verse, remember I said that it was illegal all of, all of their trials up to this point. They were not able to hold the trial unless they were in the hall of judgment during the day. And so morning comes and they say, well, you know what? We got to make this thing official. And so they meet in their hall of judgment and they have this trial. You can read about it. If you go through the harmony of the gospels, you'll see 
the, the, the timing broken down more than what Matthew breaks down here. But we've already discussed that Matthew isn't a chronological record keeper. So he says, morning came, they brought him before the elders, they rehashed the trial again, they've already decided that he's guilty of blasphemy and deserving of death, and so now they decide that they have to take him before Pilate. So this is the official trial, everything they've done under the cover of darkness, sneaky, trying to get away with it, afraid of what, still afraid of what the crowd's reaction would be. And they bring him in front of Pilate, beaten, bruised, swollen, bloody, before the emperor of Rome, uh, excuse me, before the governor of this area. They bring him. Have you ever wondered why they brought Jesus to Pilate? I mean, they'd already had their own trials. They've already decided that he was guilty and pronounced the sentence of death. Why did they then take him to the Roman governor, whom they despised, by the way? Why did they do that? Well, here's the reason. In AD 6, the Romans took away the Jews' right to execution. They could no longer carry out executions on their own. And so the Jews, if they wanted to execute Jesus, and they did, they needed Rome to do it. It's actually a good thing because if the Jews were able to have executed Jesus, they would not have crucified him. That was not their means of execution. They would have stoned him. And had that happened, there would not have been fulfilled prophecy about his death. There wouldn't have been pierced hands and feet. There would not have been an opportunity for Roman soldiers to cast lots for his, position, his possessions at the foot of the cross. They would not have offered him sour wine to quench his thirst. They would not have shouted words, save yourself, come off that cross if you are who you say you are. All these things prophesied that would happen. There would be no shed blood poured out there would be no salvation for the world. But God had a plan, a plan of salvation that he had prepared from the foundations of the world. And so they bring Jesus to the governor. Pontius Pilate, so you know, if you only read about him in the Gospels, seems like a guy who's a little bit conflicted, Maybe not a bad guy trying to help Jesus out. Do not misunderstand the person of Pilate. He was brutal and vicious and only cared about himself. In fact, the reason he was in Jerusalem, Galilee at the time actually, was because he didn't, wasn't a good fit anywhere else. He had been appointed by a friend who had then later been killed and so now was filling a role. But he wasn't a good guy. He wasn't even a great governor. You can read about his history um, in, in non-biblical accounts, um, but basically this was, he has already two strikes against him by this time. Two different, a revolt, 
and another uh, time where he executed people without any reason at all. And so now he's sitting there trying to weigh everything that he does against, I don't want there to be another revolt because it's three strikes and I'm out of here. So they bring Jesus to Pilate. Well, in verse 3, we go to Judas. It says, Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. You see, it says there that Judas, seeing that he had been condemned, that means at some point along the way, he joins in the crowd. He's there and he is seeing what's going on. They see, he sees them bring out Jesus and he's beat to a bloody pulp and he hasn't even been scourged yet. And Judas looks at Jesus and he must think, this isn't what I thought was going to happen when I betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. It says that he was remorseful. Um, in Greek, it simply means he changed his mind. He changed his mind. It didn't go the way he thought it was going to go. Now, all of a sudden, he's unhappy with his choice, and he changes his mind. So he thinks, maybe I can stop it by just giving the money back. So you see, to, G to Judas, his betrayal of Jesus was about the money. To him, the money was the desired end result. It says that he went to the chief priests of the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is it to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. You know that Judas goes back and he says, here, here, you know what? I made a, I made a mistake. This is on me. My bad, my bad. And he takes the money and he tries to give it back to them. And they're like, oh, you know, we don't want anything to do with this. Uh, we don't want anything to do with this. You, you just, you go and you figure it out. And Judas seems surprised that the same men whom he secretly conspired with to arrest an innocent man will now not support his conviction of conscience. It's like teaming up with someone to rob somebody and then being surprised when that same guy turns around and says, okay, give me your money now too. We have a saying, no honor among thieves. True. Judas's guilt, his guilty conscience drives him to a place of self-destruction. It's interesting here in this story, we have two betrayers specifically, Judas and Peter. Both betrayed Jesus that night. One because he was greedy for money and the other because he was afraid of the consequences of associating with Jesus, which is worse. One didn't know who Jesus really was, calling him rabbi when all of the other apostles called him Lord. And he was left with no hope, consumed with guilt, and he killed himself. The other, weeping over his betrayal of the one he knew was the Lord and the Savior, and that knowledge at least gave him hope. You see, Peter was convicted over his sin. Judas was condemned. And there's a difference. 
Condemnation over sin pushes you away from Jesus. It comes from the devil. But conviction of your sin draws you closer to Jesus. It says in 2 Corinthians, godly sorrow produces repentance. Condemnation will push you away as the tool of the devil. He wants you to feel condemned in your sin and push you away from Jesus who has forgiveness waiting. Conviction draws you to the Lord where where forgiveness is waiting. It's what saved Peter. Well, in verse 6 it says, But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they were the price of blood. The chief priests and the elders say, We can't take this money. It was paid for blood by them. By them. That is the height of hypocrisy. When Jesus says, You strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. Hypocrisy. They paid the money. So it says they took the silver pieces uh, and they said that this is not lawful to put into the treasury, but this is the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to to bury strangers in. And therefore the field has been called the field of blood to this day. And then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them to the potter's field as the Lord directed me. And simply, this is a prophecy saying that this is what was going to happen. And they, bought, they took the money and they bought a field, the potter's field, very simply was a field where they would go out and they would scrape up mud, the potters in the town, and they would go in and they would make pots and jars and jugs and all of that. And when the, if, if you've ever, um, have you ever thrown pottery on a wheel before? So it could go bad really easily. Uh, and while you're working, sometimes the pot goes bad or it cracks before you get to fire it. And so they could just take it and throw it back into the muddy field and it would reconstitute into the soil and then they could reuse that clay again later. But this is the field that they bought that they would bury strangers in as well. So I wonder if, you know, someone died and decomposed into that mud and then they made a, like a jug out of that mud later and you'd be like, but this, this mud tastes familiar. <laughs> Verse 11, let's go on. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews again? I love this very direct question. Are you the king of the Jews? And look at Jesus' answer. It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he answered and said nothing. And then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word. So the governor marveled greatly. It says in another gospel that when they brought Jesus to Pilate, they actually would not go into his house because they would be defiled and not able to celebrate the feast day if they went into the house of a Gentile. So, um, hey, we can't be defiled by going into your house. Killing an innocent man Eh, going into a Gentile's house, no, we're not doing that. Again, gnat and camel. 
not, we're, we're not going to be defiled, but going into Pilate's house. Camel, um, you know, but this guy's innocent, but we just don't want him around. So let's just kill him. And let's do every other illegal thing to get there. And so they're outside and they're hurling accusations at Jesus through the doors and the windows outside. And Pilate says, don't you hear what they're saying about you? And Jesus doesn't even answer them. In John's gospel, you know what? Do you know what Pilate says? Don't you know that I have the power to kill you or to save you? You know what Jesus says? Nobody takes my life. Nobody takes my life. I lay it down. I lay it down. You understand, as we're going through this, every brutal act that is poured out on Jesus, he could have stopped at any moment. But he didn't because he said, I lay my life down for you. For me, at any moment. Do you know that the Bible says that Jesus holds all things together in the palm of his hand? You know what that means? Every time someone slapped him in the face while he had a hood on, he held together the atoms that held together that fist. Later on, when they pull out a whip and they scourge him, every time that lash went across his back, he held that whip together by his will for us. Each nail that went through his hand, he could have went, done. We held the atoms of the nails together that went through his hands and held them there on that cross. And Pilate says, I have the power to save you or to kill you. Jesus was like, 185,000 angels ready to go, just waiting for the nod. And he's like, wait. Now, verse 15, it says, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. All right, this is very interesting. So Pilate, he's looking for an out. Pilate has just said to Jesus, I have the power to kill you or to save you. We know that from a God's perspective, from God's perspective, that's not true. He didn't. But now we find out even from a worldly perspective, even though he claims to have power, he doesn't have any power because he's trying to bargain with the Jews. Did he need to bargain with the Jews? Not officially. He could have said, nah, dismissed. This case is silly. But he was afraid of a revolt. He was afraid of what they did. So did he have any power at all? No. He says, look, 
It's the custom for me to release one of your prisoners on this feast day. And I've got this guy, this notorious guy. We know that Barabbas was a murderer and a robber and, and also most likely a revolutionary. He was involved in a revolt where he had killed some people. And, and he, Pilate, says, I've got this guy, Judas. Now, did you know, maybe you didn't know this, but if you were actually to read this in Greek, he says this, I have a guy here whose name is Jesus Barabbas. His name is Jesus Barabbas. Barabbas means son of the father. He says, I've got a guy here, Jesus, son of the father. Which Jesus do you want? Jesus, the son of the father, or Jesus, the one called Christ, which means the anointed one. This is why you'll notice now when we read this, that's how he keeps saying it. Jesus Barabbas, or Jesus, the one called Christ. He keeps identifying Jesus, the one called Christ, because they're both named Jesus. So Pilate says, which Jesus do you choose? Do you choose the one who will serve your purpose because you saved him? Or will you choose the Jesus whose purpose you will serve because he came to save you? Whose purpose will you serve? Well, it seems like an obvious answer to me, but we all need to examine our lives In light of what we've been looking at these last several weeks, are you still trusting in your own righteousness, believing that you should be able to enter into the wedding feast in your own clothes or your own good deeds? Is your devotion to Jesus and his kingdom inward or just outward for others to see and to think, man, that guy is really spiritual. Is your worship half-hearted at best? Giving the Lord your leftovers and convincing yourself that he is happy even with just that much? Or are you breaking open the costly alabaster flask of oil and pouring it out for Jesus and then wiping his feet with your hair saying, Jesus, the oil that drips from your feet is more than I deserve, but I am grateful to have it. Which Jesus do you choose? Now, if you're now realizing that you too often are choosing Jesus Barabbas, you should know that Jesus the Christ loves you even in that place. He says, child, come to me. Confess to me and I will forgive you and restore our beautiful relationship." Pilate says, which Jesus do you choose? Now, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Pilate's wife comes to Pilate in the midst of this. And he says, have nothing to do with that just man. That is the position of many still today. 
seen so clearly this time of year when Christmas seems to have nothing to do with that just man. But her words in Greek are slightly different. It actually says, let there be nothing between you and that righteous man. You see, like that's a message I think that we all need. Let there be nothing between you and Jesus. Not envy, not strife, not fear, not worry, not shame, not lust, not, right un, not unforgiveness. Let there be nothing between you and that righteous man. Verse 20 says, But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. You know, I mean, like, does this, like, just a week ago, there was a crowd yelling for Jesus, cheering for Jesus, saying, Hosanna in the highest. And, and now all of a sudden they're like, kill him. Let, let's kill him. We should crucify that guy. Is that the same crowd? Like, I don't believe it's the same people. Remember, this is very early in the morning. The multitudes that washed in with him from outside of the city on Palm Sunday are most likely now camped outside of the city, probably still asleep, just having that first or second cup of coffee. It was a lot harder back then. She's like, took a lot longer to make coffee back then. So who is this crowd? Who is this crowd that is in the city and awake at this early hour? Maybe, this is just speculation on my part so you know, but maybe this is a crowd that's left over from the partying the night before. The rebel rousers the drunkards who have been gathered together. Does that seem like something the chief priests and the elders would do? Sounds like it to me. They say, the governor says, which of these two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. Then the governor said, why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more saying, let him be crucified. They don't answer the question. They have no rationale for why he should be crucified other than that they've been stirred up emotionally and now they're just responding, crucify, crucify. They're not even answering the question anymore. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail, at all, but rather that a tumult was rising. He took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. Pilate does something very interesting. It says that he saw a tumult rising. Do you all have tumults? <laughs> Ever been in a tumult? He's afraid. He sees now the crowd is getting like really worked up. And he's like, oh man, I've been here before and I've been already told I can't let this happen again. So what he does is he takes a basin of water and he washes his hands in front of them and he says, I'm innocent of this blood. Did you know that this was actually a Hebrew uh, tradition or, or uh, law? that they were told to do in Deuteronomy. If you remember in Deuteronomy, we went through this. It says, 
in Deuteronomy, I forget the reference now off the top of my head, six maybe, it says this, if you go out side of the city and you find a slain man outside the city, slain, that, they use the word specifically slain, meaning that he has been stabbed, killed. The elders of all of the surrounding cities needed to go out to that man and measure the distance from that dead man to their city to see who he was closest to in distance. Because whomever he was closest to, God held responsible for that man's death. Once it was determined which city was the one responsible for the death of that person, that, those elders of that city had to go and they had to take a heifer. And if you're not a farmer, a heifer is a cow that has never given birth, has never pulled a, a yoke or a plow, hasn't been worked. So like a young cow, a heifer. Take that heifer out into a valley where there is running water, like a stream or a river, and then they were to break its neck. And that heifer was the substitute for the guilty party. Okay? Then what they would do is they would take a basin of water uh, and in sight of the city, and they would wash their hands in that basin of water, and they would say that they were now innocent of the blood or of that slain man. And it says here, oh, it's a Deuteronomy 21, verse 9, it says, so you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. And that is what Pilate is trying to do. He's taking that basin of water and he's trying to say before them, I am washing my hands of this. I'm innocent of the blood of this innocent man. Only the difference is that Pilate didn't do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He could have released him. He knew he was innocent. He knew they had handed him over because they were envious. And so he's trying to get out of it. And yet we know that Pilate is connected to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ from that moment until right now still. Now, I have to share with you this other thing that has to do with Deuteronomy chapter 21. Do you know when we do communion here, Jesus said, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. This cup is my blood, which has been poured out for the remission of your sins. The cup we get, his blood was spilt. It was necessary that an innocent sacrifice, an innocent sacrifice shed its blood for the atonement or the covering of sin, but that Jesus spilled his blood as the one perfect, holy, and righteous sacrifice. And so the blood was, was for the forgiveness for all times. But why the broken body? Why did he say that? What does that mean? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever asked yourself, why did he say, this bread is my body, which is broken? Deuteronomy chapter 21. The heifer was taken out and its neck was broken as a substitute for the one who was guilty. Jesus says, my body is broken. My blood is spilt. He says, my body is broken. I'm the substitute 
who bears the guilt for the one who was actually guilty. My blood is the sacrificial atonement for the sin. Jesus says there's a difference between substitute and sacrifice. The substitute's neck was broken. The sacrifice's blood was shed. Jesus says, I'm the substitute and the sacrifice. Every time we do communion, that's what we remember. That he was our substitute and our sacrifice. Now you know where that comes from. Now you know Jesus was saying that I'm your substitute and your sacrifice. Remember that when you take this communion supper. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and our children. Nice. Yeah. Then they released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Can you imagine? Imagine you're Judas. Uh, excuse me, Barabbas. Imagine you're Barabbas. Imagine you were in line. You were being held to be crucified. You were going to die because of your crimes. And then somebody steps up and says, hey, Barabbas, guess what? You're being let go. You're off the hook. You don't actually have to go to the cross and die. Somebody else is taking your place. How elated would you be if you were Barabbas? All of a sudden you're like, oh man, I was just about to be executed and killed because of my crime. And now somebody who I don't even know stepped in and is taking my place and he's going to go and he's going to carry my cross and he's going to die and I get to go free. Can you imagine what Barabbas must feel like? Can you? Because it's you right now. Because that's exactly what happened to you as well. Exactly. You were waiting to die because of your crimes. And someone that you don't know, the Bible says that you didn't even love that you were an enemy of, stepped into your place and took up your cross and went to the hill and died in your place so that you, like Barabbas, could... I mean, man, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And they released him. And they sent Jesus off to be scourged. Matthew doesn't spend any time on it because who Matthew was writing to would known 100% what that meant. It was a way that the Romans would use to extract information. Sitting with the Roman uh, garrison would also be a Hebrew scribe keeping track of everything. And they said that you are to whip this man, this prisoner, 40 times minus one for mercy's sake. And then they would pick up a whip and embedded in this whip, these many arms would be bits of glass and bone so that when it went across his back and was yanked backwards, it would literally tear open the flesh on the back, sometimes exposing the organs through the back. Many people actually died during this 
process. And this is where they send Jesus to. And as you read this and, the, and as you consider this, consider once again that he could have stopped it at any moment. But for my sake and for your sake, he endured every single lash. And they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him and they twisted a crown of thorns and they put it on his head and a reed in his hand and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Well, they've got that part right. Hail, King of the Jews. And they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him and put on his own clothes and led him away to be crucified. going to stop there. Unbelievably, I'm going to stop right there. Now you're asking yourself this question, I'm sure. Next Sunday is Christmas Eve. That's our Christmas message. Is Pastor Aaron going to talk about the crucifixion on Christmas or is he going to talk about the birth of Jesus, our Lord and Savior? Here's the answer. Yes. You understand, Jesus was born. We celebrate that this time of year. But why was he born? He came to die. He didn't save us through his birth. He saved us through his death. But in order to die, he had to be born. And so it astounds me that God in his understanding of all things would have us end here. And I'm not even ending early. I have a minute left. <laughs> that he would have me end here in order for us to be able to talk about his crucifixion and resurrection on the same day that everybody else is talking about his birth. And we will as well. But it is so important that we understand why he was born. It was so important for us to be in this place that God gave me the flu last week so that I would be on track with him next week. Lord, you work in mysterious ways. So, don't be afraid to bring your friends and your family members. Bring them, because they're going to hear about the birth of our Savior, but they're going to hear about what his, ultimately what his death did for us, which is the best gift ever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Lord, for your word, for your, for your divine appointments, Lord, for your timing, Lord, for how you make all things work together for your good. Thank you for your son's birth and death for my sins, Lord. Thank you for his resurrection, which defeated death once and for all. Thank you for that amazing gift, Lord God. And I pray this morning as we go out of here today, and Lord, we would not get so wrapped up in these last few days that we would be directed away from the real reason we celebrate. Thank you, Jesus. And we pray in your name. Amen. Amen.
Amen. Amen.